What does it mean to live a good life? We know what we've been told. Work hard, get an education, obtain a secure job, get the spouse, the house, the 2.5 kids, and the dog. But the harsh economic realities are making this unachievable for younger generations. In a time when younger generations are questioning their ability to achieve, quote, the American dream, it is more urgent than ever to revisit what it means to live a good life. Can we live well apart from the American dream? This is Christian Curious, and I'm Dr. Haley Gray Scott. Each week, we tackle some of the hardest, most pressing questions facing Christians in the 21st century. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Bethan Willis about what it means to live a good life. Bethan Willis is now an associate chaplain with the Oxford Pastorate. In recent years, she headed up programs for the Oxford Character Project, held a non-residential fellowship from the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction Program, and worked with charities and the Diocese of Oxford on projects engaging churches with social justice issues. Currently, she is leading the Flourishing Life Project at Oxford. Bethan, welcome to Christian Curious. Hello, thank you for having me. Bethan, here in the States, we are undergirded by the notion of the American dream, which is the ideal that every citizen of the United States should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. And for centuries, this has been our idea of what it means to live a good life. Um, I'm interested to know how you would define what a good life is. Yeah, it's a great question. And I suppose that a good life always has um, multiple dimensions. So some of those kind of economic elements uh, do help us kind of live well. But I wouldn't say they're anything um, fundamental in terms of the ends of kind of what I think a good life is. So I think a good life really is one in which uh, we're flourishing as human beings. And there's different ways we could think about that word flourishing. But as a Christian, I'm really thinking about it as the fullness of life, which Jesus talks about in John 10. And I guess that's a life which is rich, which unlocks all of the of what we're meant to be as human beings. Um, it relates to some degree to our potential, being all that we're made to be. Um, and I think it's got some of the deepest things of which we're capable, things like love, goodness, kindness, selflessness, perseverance, gratitude, all those kind of things are involved in a full and flourishing life. Um, and I think a lot of what's good about life as well is about relationships. So understanding ourselves well in terms of who we are, how we relate to others, how we relate to God um, in a context of kind of neighborhood and community and living well with creation as well. So I think all of those relationships um, are part of what it means to live like a really full and good and flourishing life. So it's a completely different concept from what we have, and it's more about who we are. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I think when we're thinking about our context right now in terms of uh, particularly the current economic climate, um, which is so hard, um, I think it's really important to, to think about who we are as people and who we are as communities as well. I always like to emphasize that who we are as communities, because I think, um, you know, we're never made to live alone. We're not people uh, who are designed to live alone. Uh, we're designed to live in community and in relationships. So um, I think getting some of those things straight can really help us um, when some of the other things that we might look to, like you mentioned, you know, the job, the car, the house, the kids, when they don't turn up in our lives. Um, it's good to know that there are actually fundamental 
um, things that we that we are as human beings that we can become that we can um, run after, which will still build the kind of good life uh, that we really long for. I think. You know, there are several big ideas there, and I'm interested to know whenever how do you engage with people who are Christians and aren't Christians? I think both Christians and non-Christians um, are not familiar with this concept of the flourishing life and character and virtues as much as we could be. How do you start to build an understanding of, of those concepts whenever you're just beginning with people? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think what we often do, um, David Brooks, the um, New York Times writer, is uh, really good on this. He's written a whole book about um, the road to character, which is his own personal journey of exploring kind of what it means to live a good life. And the thing that sets that set him off on his journey is identifying that there were people around him who had some kind of inner light. They looked different. Their lives looked different. They were sort of lighter and easier. Um, probably more joyful, things like that. And he thought, what is it? Like, what is it that is making their lives good? Because he kind of had everything that he might want in terms of the checklist. Um, And I think that's often the case. You know, people can start to tick these boxes off um, in their life, but they still can see that there's there's something missing or there's something that other people have that they don't have that is really kind of making them more fully human, I think. So I think one of the ways we can often start talking to people about what it means to live a good life is um, to talk about who you know, who is it that you admire, who are your kind of um, heroes, particularly when you think about like the qualities they have. So when I ask people that kind of question, they're often people like their mum, their dad, their sister, people they've seen close up and they can see have these kind of qualities of goodness in them. Um, and some people point to people further away. It can be hard to know whether your hero is actually good, you know, if you saw them uh, close up at qu- close quarters over many years. Um, but they can often see kind of attributes of leaders um, that they really admire. Um, so I think looking at people, looking at examples is a way that people start to think about this. And we also ask questions about, you know, who do you want to be if someone could remember you at the end of your life? Um, how would you want to be remembered? And I often ask that and I say, choose kind of three words. And I remember one person list, listing what we might call CV virtues, you know, the sort of I want to be a doctor or a director, a CEO, those kind of things. But almost always people want to be remembered as a good friend, as loving, as kind, as generous. Lots of those words, which actually, you know, there's a commonality to that. We all want to be good, I think. And it's just helping people find the space to kind of unlock that question um, and their ideas about that, I suppose. That's, um, yeah, so it's really fun, exciting thing to do, actually. Yeah, the the end of life question is, you know, so is such a poignant way to draw attention to what really matters to people. And, you know, you think you spend your days striving, you know, to achieve something, to achieve goals, to, you know, obtain the job. And then, but at the same time, If you look at it from the end of life perspective, that's not really what people want to be known for, at least most people. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I think it's just that end of life question is good because it really focuses the mind. And um, you do find that people and, you know, I've spoken to people of all kind of faiths and cultures and backgrounds really do have a common sense of what it is to live a good life. 
it gets more complicated when you start to think about how do we get there. But actually, people have some kind of common vision of what a well-lived life is. And I think, you know, as a Brit, you you probably have seen um, the press around the Queen dying um, mm-hmm. a, a couple of months ago, a month ago or so. And um, just the widespread ab- admiration for the qualities of her life, um, which were actually also rooted in her Christian faith. Um, but that that kind of admiration really spread kind of across the world and across the board. Um, people could see that she had lived um, lived well, that she had sacrificed things, that she had um, done her duty um, and things like that. So people might disagree with some of the actions she'd taken or what she stood for as, in terms of a, as, as the monarchy, but um, they could see that there was something good about her life. And I think that's quite common um, that we often see goodness in people and that uh, we agree that that is goodness. Yeah, it's, it was very interesting, you know, even over here, in America, our response to the queen's death. She's obviously not our queen. Um, we settled that a few centuries ago, but, um, but we did really, there, she had such great, great admiration here. You know, her concept to duty, her concept to kindness, um, and, you know, the way that she lived her life, you know, and, you know, committing to that and following through with the promises that she made, whether my life be long or short, you know, I promise. Um, and so that was incredibly powerful to see how she executed that. And everybody could agree with that. Nobody's disagreeing with that. Um, at least not seriously. I don't think many people would disagree. They might disagree what she stood for, but they didn't disagree with the fact that she lived well. Mm, I think that's right. Yeah. The sort of faithfulness and selflessness, and that, yeah, to the end, to the death, uh, to working up to her death um, is an incredible thing. And we don't often see that now. Um, so, it's, yeah, that's been a real great example and a, a, another place where you can kind of focus people's attention and conversation to start thinking about who they want to be and what their good life is going to look like um, and how they're going to get there. Yeah. yeah. So tell me more about the Flourishing Life Project. What exactly is that? Yeah, so the Flourishing Life Project is trying to pick up on some of these themes. Um, and it's really aimed at people in their 20s and 30s um, who I think are asking questions about meaning and purpose, um, particularly. And what we're trying to do is open up a space where they can ask those questions, where we can come together to reflect together um, on what the good life might mean, on what they love in life how they hope to be remembered, um, what kind of people and communities they hope for. Um, And I think the reasons we've set this up are partly because I think within the Christian church, uh, we need to do some kind of mission like this. Um, And the reason is that sometimes as Christians, we can um, think that evangelism is actually about telling other people what's right and what's wrong and often how they are wrong. And so there's quite a lot of... um, you know, hierarchy within those conversations. We are the people who know things and we will tell you uh, what's what. Um, And that doesn't work so well often with millennials, of which I am one, and kind of Gen Z, um, the next generation down, because um, that kind of uh, approach of authority and um, telling people about uh, facts and truths it's not really how they engage with um, their own spiritual seeking and they're kind of trying to find um, their own sense of what a good life is. Um, they really want to be much more open, to reflect together, to have um, contexts in which they are equal to others, I think, and where um, we're just trying to 
approach a good quest uh, a good question in a really open way so we're not trying to direct people to an answer we're just trying to provide the space the reflection materials the questions uh, and the people to support um th that kind of conversation essentially um yeah so that's what we're trying to do with flourishing life and often it focuses around so we might go on a walk we might have a film night um we have book clubs and it's often um us gathering around a common point of reflection so nature art you know uh, whatever and that's a really good uh, way of kind of bridge building and um, helping us just open up this space for talking about the good line uh, what are some of the things that you've learned so far through the project any kind of surprising things that you've discovered yeah so i think one of the things is that it's actually really hard to build community amongst young adults is one thing. Um, and with this project, we've I normally work with university students. So there's a kind of given community within which I'm working and I'm just simply trying to open up conversations. So I'm only doing that part of the job. Um, with this Flourishing Life project, we try to open it up to people across Oxford and particularly in um, the area that um, my church is based in Clements, which is um, just sort of to the east of the city centre. And actually, it's really hard to create community. People live um, in very fractured ways. There's no kind of real hub of where people gather together. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think just drawing together community has been a real challenge of the project. But the good thing I think I'm seeing is that there's a real passion for this. I think particularly post-COVID, um, people have had a bit more time to think about what their life's about. And some of that thinking has been really difficult. So I think um, one of the things I notice is that um, young people often have a really low sense of agency. So their ability to affect change in the world or their ability to move forward, to progress, um, to make a life for themselves. I think that's been exacerbated by COVID. And I think we see that. Um, but I think that also gives rise to um, these questions becoming more pressing. So people really want to talk about um, what's meaningful, what's purposeful, what does a good life mean? How do I flourish? Um, it's not something that you're trying to make people talk about, they want to. So then it's just um, making the space for them to do that and the kind of framework and the space in which they're comfortable. Um, so I think there are challenges building community, uh, but also positives in terms of the kind of need and the demand um, that we see. At Denver Seminary, our online, on-campus, and hybrid graduate education programs prepare men and women to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. Our mission will equip you for any ministry calling. To learn more about our degree programs, certificate opportunities, and classes, visit denverseminary.edu. Why do you think that there is such a challenge in building community? I mean, I, you know, have worked with young adults for, you know, the past five years. And so I have some theories, but I want to hear, why do you think it is such a challenge? Yeah. There are lots of interlocking reasons, aren't there? I mean, there's digital life. Um, and I think COVID also just really um, locked people into whatever situation they were. And it's reduced, um, you know, developing kind of social capacities that people have. So, you know, as, as particularly as very young adults, you're really learning how to be a kind of social person in the world on your own. And some of that has really been constrained by um, the, the past couple of years of, of pandemic, I think. 
and that means that that learning hasn't happened and some of the ways that people used to gather um stopped happening and then people have to create that again so it takes a lot of energy a lot of resilience a lot of effort to get um social uh, kind of community going again amongst that group so i think some of it is is about the past few years in my neck of the wood in oxford there are also issues probably around housing which mean that people are moving in and out a lot um so that um doesn't help in terms of stability um so I think, yeah, there's all those things. And then there's just wider context. People are probably a bit, I think people are a bit fearful of each other, actually, sometimes. They're fearful of saying the wrong thing, of being the wrong thing, of appearing to be the wrong thing, of politics, you know. So there's a lot of segmentation and I think a lot of fear of each other sometimes. And I think that's another thing that we're trying to do with this Flourishing Life project. We don't talk about politics. We're trying to talk about people, about you, me, about how we live together in community. And so I think it's a way of taking the pressure off because, as I said before, there's so much commonality that we find um, from the outset um, in these kind of conversations. So it really is bridge building and it's um, really locking out some of the subjects and the conversations which people find difficult and divisive. Um, but yeah, those are some of the reasons that I think community is hard to build. It's hard to just reach people, honestly. People aren't meeting in spaces they meet online and at work but they're not kind of uh, walking streets in the same way uh, but i'd love to know what you think at probably another time <laughs> why that community is uh, breaking down but um yeah that's a hard job to build community it really is and you know to your point about you know the fear i mean there's so much at stake as far as you know when i was young if i said something silly when i was 10 um, it wouldn't, it has no bearing on who I am today or what I do or anything. But today there are people who, you know, have maybe said something online. Um, here in the States, we had someone who wrote something when she was 14 and she was about to get a job at a magazine and they uncovered a tweet that she sent when she was 14 and she was forced to resign from her post before even beginning because of something she wrote when she was 14, she was 24. Um, and so that kind of stuff sticks forever. And there's, um, there's, there's very high stakes if you're wrong or if you say something wrong or if you're, you know, you don't, you know, you might offend someone unknowingly. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think, it's that kind of judgment, isn't it? There's a lot of judgment around and there's very little grace or forgiveness. So I think that is one thing. And I think also as the world becomes so complex and so threatening in lots of ways because of climate change, because of economic issues, um, all sorts of issues, people are trying to make it make sense. And so they're trying to categorize everything. So that's where a lot of the judgment comes from, isn't it? Um, so they categorize things, they categorize people, and that is really difficult to navigate. And I think ultimately is quite dehumanizing. Um, it's not allowing people to be uh, all that they are, the kind of nuanced, multidimensional people that they are. So I think that really affects um, that kind of community building, uh, friendship building kind of work. So I think anything where we can do the job of seeing people as fully human and seeking to encourage that and build it up and um, see people live in that fullness of life um, that Jesus talks about, that's actually going to tackle some of those problems, um, some of the reasons that people find it find it hard to connect with others, I think. 
Yeah. I mean, I completely agree as far as, you know, there's also a sense of being stunted, you know, as a, as a human being, not being able to walk in the fullness of what it means to be human, not being able to walk into the, the fullness of who God created you to be because of that fear. Mm. Um, okay. So you mentioned that, you know, part of the project is to help people reflect on the fl flourishing life through the arts. Can you give me a recent example of something that you did? Yeah. So um, we watched together um, a, a new version of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Um, it's a film um, that is directed by Armando Iannucci, and it's got um, a particular lens um, in which it's kind of putting together um, the elements of that novel. And we talked about it in terms of joy. So joy is a theme that I love to talk about. There's been some great work done um, at Yale amongst theologians there thinking about what it means to live with joy and to live joyfully and to cultivate joy in our lives. And to me, this film just epitomizes joy. There's really hard times in it. Um, people lose all their money. Uh, they are abused. They are excluded. Terrible things happen. But underpinning it, Armando Iannucci, the director, is really trying to draw out this life that is lived towards joy of finding everything good that there is to find, even in um, real difficulty. And the score, the music plays a really large part in that. There's this kind of uplifting music, which has got um, kind of difficult undertones. There's these kind of minor notes that are kind of taking you along, but it's lifting. And um, we look, we watched that with a group and it is just, it's a really joyful experience. You can probably hear that in the way that I'm talking about it. I find it deeply uplifting. Um, but it was also wonderful to talk about joy. Where, where do we find joy in our lives and how do we um, cultivate that kind of disposition um, and the expectation of finding joy, even in really difficult times? Uh, so that was a wonderful um, event that we hosted. Joy is actually my word for the year, is seeking joy. That's actually normally, you know, in the past, um, it's really interesting. I, my words have been like build, marathon, um, achieve, um, words that are action, words that are accomplishment. And this year I just picked joy because, you know, whenever you're so like forced to try to achieve, 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 you don't take time to be, you don't take time to find the joy and actually, you know, striving for achievement can actually rob you of joy in many ways. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Joy often comes when we're paying attention to the small things, to the insignificant things. And that's where we often find the kind of deepest joy. And joy, I think, is transforming. And it's also a transcendent kind of thing. So it lifts us up. I think it connects us to who God is and how he uh, made us to be and to live. Um, so I think it's a really important thing to reflect on. Yeah, yeah I have uh, just wrapped up writing the book, Not a Hopeless Case, um, Six Questions for young, from young adults to a church in crisis. And it was a really hard experience because I had 10,000 pages of da data. And um, so I, and then I had to work with really hard material. And not too long ago, me and my daughters went up into the Rocky Mountains and we did this trail and we got to the top of a mountain and there was this um, shallow lake where it w went up to my knees basically. And it was an alpine lake. 
and I, my daughters stood on the side and I just pulled up my, my, uh, pants to my knees and I walked out to the water and I just stood in the middle of the lake on the rocks and I just with mountains all around me and I just felt this incredible sense of peace and joy just you know it was an incredible moment of just stopping to reflect to you know have have my feet in an alpine lake um, on top of a mountain was just it brought me such joy um there's probably a lot of people who that wouldn't bring joy to, but it did for me. I think that's quite common though, isn't it? Being out in nature. So one of the other things we've done is, is walking. And I think we've had, as you were saying that one of um, the other brilliant experiences of this project was a walk we went on. We stopped at a pub at the end um, and we sat outside and the sun was kind of setting, I think. And there was a starling murmuration, which is where you just have thousands of starlings making uh, these patterns in the sky um, up and down. And it was just wonderful. It was another wonderful moment. I think often when we just let everything go and connect with uh, creation, with what's around us, um, those can be really amazing moments of joy. And it's lovely when you kind of experience that collectively as well. So if someone wants to um, start to move towards living a good, flourishing life, what advice, what short piece of advice would you give them? Yeah, so I think that a flourishing life, we're kind of talking about this um, in relation to kind of virtue ethics quite often. So we're thinking about the virtues that we can cultivate within ourselves, these kind of steady dispositions, um, which are based in habits. So I think a flourishing life is not um, uh, some kind of dramatic choices that you make at moments of crisis. It's um, habits, it's daily uh, moment by moment habits. And I think some of the things that I would encourage people to reflect on as they think about how they can help themselves live this kind of full and flourishing life are some of the fundamental virtues, according to me. And those are um, attention. So we've talked about learning to pay close and loving attention to the world as it is. Um, growing in humility, something a virtue which makes space for others. Um, growing in our disposition towards joy, which we've talked about. That's delighting in the world, however we find it, and in each other. Um, and in all that God has made. And also stepping out in courage. I think courage is another really important virtue. And that's about trusting God, taking risks, shrugging off the fear of life that we've also talked about um, and the world and of each other that so often binds us. So I think attention, humility, joy and courage. Think about those things and how you grow them in your own life. Those would be a really good place to start. Well, Bethan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a total pleasure. You've been listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott. Be sure to check us out at our website for more episodes and to learn more about our work and more about what we do. Reach out to me anytime with your comments or questions to Haley at ChristianCurious.com. That's H-A-L-E-E at ChristianCurious.com. Stay curious. Thank you.